be Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Stephen Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hey guys. Uh, the regular penance to Virat Nehru is abroad at the moment, but he will be joining us in a, back in a couple of weeks. Looking forward to having Virat back in the studio. Later in the program, we will be talking Guns Akimbo, which has a special screening on Friday night and is in general release from the following week, as well as The Invisible Man, the new Lee Winnell film, now that the embargo is over. And it is in cinemas from tomorrow. However, first up, the Fantastic Film Festival Australia is in full swing over at the Randwick Ritz. It is running through until March 2nd. And we have the festival director, Hudson Sawada, with us to talk all things Fantastic Film Festival Australia. Hudson, thank you so much for joining us. It is my absolute pleasure, guys. So excited to be having a chat with you today. We're just excited that, there's a, that this is happening. It's the first time it's happened in Sydney. It's a new festival. It's always exciting. Can you tell us, Fantastic Film Festival Australia, what is it? What is it all about? Yeah, totally. So um, the festival is an event dedicated to artists and, and filmmakers who are working on really, I guess, the fringes of, of cinema, those who are challenging the status quo, creating highly unique and, uh, I guess, really authentic pieces of, of uh, outsider cinema, and uh, with a real focus on people with uh, a distinct perception of reality or, or, or something to say about the something political or, or social or, or something really personal, um, all with, a, I guess, a, a bit of a slight twist. You could, you could see it as that. Um, and really, these, these films, while a lot of them kind of fit into, I guess, genre elements, you know, horror, sci-fi, uh, uh, you know, fantasy kind of cinema, um, are really what, at the core of the event, it is. It, it, it's dedicated to those with a, a questioning eye and a, and a, and a, and a really uh, unique attitude um, to, to filmmaking. So, uh, yeah, we've got an incredibly diverse range of films, 25 uh, Australian premieres, which are, uh, range from you know, solo animation projects, really minimalist films, or, or some of them are, are you know, really hard-boiled horror films and crime titles. There's some great thrillers, and, and really just something that uh, you really never get the opportunity to, to see in Australia, a lot of these titles, let alone with a, a cinema audience. So we're incredibly excited to, to be bringing them to, to Sydney. Did the idea for the programming start off as a more genre-based approach and then broaden, or um, were you always open to all sorts of different programming? Because it is, a, yeah, as you say, most, it's quite an interesting mix. Most definitely. So it actually started in 2018, I guess, the, the mindset of the festival with an event we ran in Melbourne called Paris Cinema Fest. And paracinema is like a, it's a term that was coined in, in the 90s to, to describe an, an attitude to filmmaking that is uh, about supporting transgressive films, uh, counterculture ideas, and, and people who are really, uh, I guess, pushing the limits of uh, cinema uh, without necessarily having the resources or the facilities or the training to kind of really, uh, to, to, to kind of make it in, in the scene. So it's really about supporting that festival is really about supporting those kinds of films and those ideas and uh, uh, and looking at films that maybe, you know, have, uh, I guess, scaffolding still to show and supporting uh, those those artists. So from that event, we, uh, I guess, looked at what we did and, and what was really working and what was really exciting and then came back at uh, Fantastic Fest Australia with uh, that same kind of attitude but with more of a, uh, 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 I guess, a spin that was approachable and inclusive of of uh all kinds of uh really interesting uh or to filmmakers and uh and people who are really pushing pushing what uh what we can put up on screen so i guess that's kind of where the mindset came from and then as 
you know, I was programming the film festival over the last, uh, I, it's taken about nine months to, to get it to, to the way it is now. A lot of the titles, as they would come, you'd watch them and you'd have to think, does this fit into the attitude that I'm wanting to, to, to put across? And there's a couple of key titles that, that I'm sure we'll go into in more detail shortly, but uh, Chain for Life was the first film that, that we programmed. And it really uh, um, spoke to the, this mindset of using genre and genre themes to, to really explore complex and political and and really personal issues and, and Chain for Life is, is really about who gets to make films and, and what limited stories we get access to, especially when it comes to uh, disability and, and, and an industry focused on beauty. So that really set the tone uh, for the event and then a film like uh, Aren't You Happy, which is this bubblegum romp with a big band soundtrack that's just a deconstruction of so much uh, uh, political writing and and uh, and, and uh, just a, a amazing that film that wouldn't fit into any traditional genre uh, categories really was a perfect fantastic attitude so yeah i guess as we were kind of going we were trying to figure out what what uh mindset we wanted to, to, to kick the event off and uh, that's kind of how it came about so i was at the screening the other night chain for life the australian premiere the opening of the festival and i picking up on some of the things you said yes it deals with ideas of beauty and representation but also ideas of exploitation and when this can be seen or when or how this can be avoidable how it can be um, even unintentionally evoked within cinema um, I'm very curious in perspective of that but also how some of the other films particularly in the festival uh, try to address this trend or try to address what is a very broad and um, quite an often contentious issue within cinema yes yes that's exactly right and often uh, th- there are contradictions in themes and, and, and not all the films really are uh, uh, a super, I guess, safe in, in some ways. We have a film, uh, Golden Glove, which is the most challenging title, no doubt, in the program that I think will will really um, uh, affect a lot of people, both in uh, ways that they expected and, and didn't expect it. I remember expect, the reviews being mostly of horror or disgust when that premiered at Berlin. Yes, <laughs> yes, and and that's when I watched it after after it released in Berlin, which was booed and, and walked out, and it was an incredibly... Uh, 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 infamous screening, but then now the the, the the film has had a bit of life and and has really kind of come into its own in the, the the genre festival and it was famous well relatively recently the fantastic fest in the U.S. Uh, the director's favorite film of the festival and it really got an incredibly uh, uh, well received screening over there. So I guess that kind of uh, mainstream crowd isn't necessarily open to some of the more challenging. I will. Calling the festival crowd mainstream isn't isn't quite right, but it's its own little box, I think, with its own expectations and its own conventions. That's right, and you kind of have to give it just a little bit of context, I think, and and to just kind of go into that a lot. Well, some of these films to just go in, um, I guess, uh, without necessarily being uh, put in in a certain kind of festival or a certain kind of environment can really affect, I think, the the experience of it. Where if you're going into the screening with a bunch of other people who are really interested in, in, in cinema that is uh, that is not uh, by the grain, I think it'll be a different different kind of. Not to say that it's going to be for everybody, but I think uh, I think there are, there are certainly titles that uh, are really uh, work really well in a genre environment and uh, with a genre crowd that uh, may not do so elsewhere. And you're here on Film Fight Club with Glenn Falcons and Chris Evans, and we're talking all things Fantastic Film Festival Australia at the Ritz Cinema with festival director Hassan Sawada. So, as you said, there are 25 Australian premieres. A lot of them are 
have offer more tours. They're very genre-based, and many have, um, to this end, quite explicit content. A lot of the films have content warnings. However, I noticed there are two program, two films in the program which do not. Uh, they're both animations, and one I was very happy to catch the other day, a Latvian film. And I'm wondering, these films in particular, what do you believe that establishes them as fantastic and contributes to, in a, in a very different aesthetic and form, to the rest of the fantastic program? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, fantastic cinema, uh, the, the fantastic cinema mindset is often kind of deals with extremes, you know, like uh, people who are, are pushing it to the extremes of, of uh, yeah, graphic content or whether it be in the form of violence or language or, or tone or, or aesthetic, really. So, so they kind of push it, push out what the possibilities of, of film can, can, can kind of be about. So, uh, in that nature, often the, you know, there, there, there are moments of, of graphic nature. And, and even though there's a lot of films highlighted as such, many of those I mean, maybe have one or two sequences that, uh, that uh, uh, maybe consider it to, to be, have that warning. But those two animations are, are no less extreme in their ambition. You know, as, as, as you've seen away, it really is a, this tour de force of this, this filmmaker who, who's made this entire film uh, completely by themselves on a, on, you know, as a, as an animator, um, and it really is this amazing uh, piece of, of minimalist filmmaking that uh, is definitely uh, still full of the ambition of, of the the other fantastic films that we've got in the program. So I think it really suits the uh, the, the kind of atmosphere of the festival and, and of the, the creators that we're trying to to, to showcase. And, and the same goes with uh, She, the, the film that uh, is a stop motion animation, again made pretty much by one artist over five years. That uh, encompasses all kinds of really political themes about sex and and uh, and and you know workplace uh, discrimination and 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 especially poignant uh, the fact that it's a Chinese film as well and and the, uh, the role of gender in, and and uh, in the workplace over there. So each of these films, while you know they may not have traditional content warnings, so to speak, they they are no less uh, uh, incredibly powerful and and uh, and. I guess, yeah, ambitious, extreme films. Um, and, and she, he will leave the, the audience uh, reeling with uh, the, the insanity that ensues on the screen. I've, I've truly seen nothing, nothing like, uh, well, nothing like any of these films really in the program. Now, the other night, Chris and I were at the Ritz. We were there for Fantastic, and I caught a double, uh, Horror Noir, to date my favorite film of the festival, and we caught together uh, Zombie Child. Zombie Child. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're curious to talk about these two films, but also the, I noticed there are a number of pairings throughout the festival, and this was a particular one that stood out. Yeah, definitely. So we were really lucky to, to come across both of these films and be able to program them together because uh, Horror Noir is, is a film about the history of African-American artists in Hollywood genre cinema, and it starts at really the birth of American cinema at Birth of a Nation, which is uh, kind of set the stage really on, on the way uh, uh, black Actors and, and, and characters are treated in cinema as being either villains or, or, or servants or, or uh, uh, other kinds of uh, really sidelined and, and misrepresented people, really. And then throughout the, the cinema, uh, American cinema history, it, it just kind of uh, spilled out into different kinds of, uh, I guess, attitudes. And then uh, closing with, uh, I guess, um, the Get Out and, and Jordan Peele's fantastic new films that are really. Uh, changing the, the scene so uh and i think it really gives people a, a really great lens like any kind of film class a, a lens where you can go back and, and look at uh films or, or continue to 
to view films with a particular uh, attitude, I think, that really can contextualize things in a different way. And uh, uh, horror noir talks a lot about the, the treatment of voodoo and voodoo culture in, in, in horror films and, and how uh, inappropriately it's often used. And, and Zombie Child uh, was a really great example of, of how voodoo can be reclaimed and, and, and zombie, uh, I guess, uh, mythos can be used to explore incredibly deep and meaningful uh, themes on uh, racial oppression and colonialization through generations. So it's a, it was an incredibly smart film, Zombie Child, in the way it used uh, a split screen kind of, well, a split timeline between a real-world Haitian case of voodoo zombie slavery and the, his uh, granddaughter uh, kind of living in in a highly, uh, uh, I guess, prestigious school and, and the way that uh, the, the colonial uh, oppression of France has kind of uh, rippled through and, and the attitudes that have come through that. So I think watching those two back-to-back can kind of uh, be a little bit uh, uh, more of an enlightening cinema experience that, that uh, I really hope that people got to, got to experience the other day. Zombie Child strikes me as the kind of film that a festival like this is built for because it's the kind of slow, arty, uh, European auteur cinema film that would maybe usually play at Sydney Film Festival, but I think the genre twist there would turn people off. Mm. So it's mm-hmm. it's like where is the place for this kind of film if there aren't specialty festivals like Fantastic Fest to create a space for them? Well, yeah, I'm so glad you said that because I felt that there's a lot of films like that in here that don't necessarily fit into that real kind of uh, intense kind of uh, uh, slasher horror kind of theme. But often, yeah, again, they don't fit into to more of the uh, the uh, I guess more general and. Uh, um, Gets mainstream film festivals, so that yeah. I think they, they fit in a fantastic little pocket that we can, can contextualize together. Yeah, I think so. We're big fans here on the show of the Sydney Underground Film Festival. Of course, um, it, it, they do great work, but their programming tends to go into extremes, either in terms of gore or just being really outrageously wacky. Um, so it's good to have a space for something that doesn't necessarily fit with their mandate. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic program as well at the Sydney Underground. They've got, uh, yeah, some amazing curators. So, yeah, really excited to, to share uh, the love for, for underground cinema uh, at both events. And, uh, yeah, so so that's really nice of you to, to enjoy what we're, what we're doing. That means a lot. It's good to see more of these festivals popping up. I think it's probably a case where a rising tide helps lift all the boats. Mm. Um, anything that gets more people going to the cinema... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because these films, as, as I'm sure you, you guys have experienced, uh, uh, they're just really made for the cinema, a lot of them. They're yeah. really like ones that work so well with, in, you know, in a dark room with so much focus and, and energy and, and being with other people and, and just watching them on a computer just doesn't really do, do a lot of these films justice. So, yeah, really, really excited that uh, people have been enjoying them. No, it's much something much better to experience on as big a screen as possible, as is uh, one of my very favourite genres, which I see underrepresented in cinema, but I see quite well represented at this festival, which is psychological dramas, perched psychological thrillers. Uh, we referred to Zombie Child earlier, called Suicide Tourist. Well, I think it goes in both veins. It is predominantly a psychological drama, and it seems that there's a lot of these types of films that have been prioritised. This is, again, underappreciated genre, which has been prioritised throughout the festival. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, Suicide Tourist, again, uses... Uh, it stars Nikolai Kostelwaldu of Game, Get Game of Thrones, Jamie Lannister fan. It's so great to see him in something uh, with his, his native native tongue. And, and that ends well. Yeah, yeah. 
I love the ending, and 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 it uses genre genre tropes in such an intelligent and human way. You know, it really uh, um, showed it's a it's a real masterclass in, in how to use genre uh, effectively and and use human emotion to to really sell uh, what they're what they're trying to do. And it never stays, it never becomes pre- uh, um, uh, what I'm looking for. Um, uh, Pretentious. It never becomes pretentious and, 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 and retains its, its classy nature. So, yeah, really excited to premiere that one in Australia. So with just four days left in the festival, what films would you recommend that are still left to screen? Yeah. And, well, like uh, like we were talking about earlier, each of the films kind of uh, really, I think, captures a different kind of uh, cinema um, sensibility. So there really is something for all kinds of, of, of tastes, whether it be uh, genre or, or more psychological drama or or really just uh, animation or, or beautiful or to a cinema. So uh, where, what day are we on now? We've still got some amazing films coming up in the next few days, like Climate of the Hunter uh, tonight is a really amazing example of, of true American or to a filmmaking um, that is just this beautiful mismatch of, of great, you know, 60s and 70s looking cinema with uh, a, a vampire twist and with two fantastic leads. So that one's a really excited to, to, to be screening that. And then afterwards we've got Diner, which is this ridiculous uh, film about a diner for assassins that uh, just feels like this beautiful music video uh, with incredible uh, choreography and uh, and really uh, it's just like a John Wick meets, meets an anim- like a Japanese uh, an- anime. So that one is a really exciting film. But really the other titles that are a must kind of check out is um, on Thursday we've got a, uh, a Q&A screening with Sons of Steel, a lost heavy metal sci-fi musical, one of the last of the exploitation films in Australia that kind of uh, was lost to time and uh, may or may not be becoming a Netflix series coming up soon. So really is one to, to watch with the director and the cast and crew on Thursday and then uh, followed by a Q&A of uh, Homewrecker, a great uh, Canadian horror comedy uh, and the director's flown all the way from Canada to, to have a chat to our audience. So that one's a really exciting one not to miss. I would also really, really suggest uh, checking out St. Maud if those who haven't seen it yet. Um, that one, it really is a great example of... Uh, of a debut filmmaker coming out fully formed with with a great psychological uh, drama and thriller about faith, salvation, and that. And that's an A24 release, is that right? Yes, yes, that's right. It's uh, A24's latest film. Uh, We've got the Australian premiere. It's likely to get a cinema run in a couple of months, but, uh, yeah, really wanted to see with a big audience uh, and be the first to see it in the country. And we do have the Golden Glove on Friday for those who are game. (laughs) Indeed. So, yeah, but that is all happening at the Ritz. Um, so come check it out. We'll be there. Hudson, it's been so great to chat. We're looking forward to catching some more movies with you. Thank you so much for your time tonight, guys. I hope you enjoy the, the rest of the festival. Thank you. Thank you. And you're on Film Fight Club with Glenn and Chris, and we are talking The Invisible Man, the new film from Saws, Lee Winnell, Australia's own. Saw, yeah. And Insidious and Upgrade, which his... we covered uh, to great acclaim last year, two years ago. Yeah, this is only his second film as a director. Upgrade was the first, and... This yeah, is an upgrade? I would say this is an upgrade over Upgrade, and Upgrade was already a very promising start. One of my very favourite action scenes from a couple of years back. This is starring Elizabeth Moss, Aldous Hodge, Harriet Dyer, and Adrian Jackson Cohn. It is not based very much on the classic H.D. Wells novel, one of my very favourites when I was a child. Beyond having a invisible villain who murderous, that's it. There is one wry illusion involving a coat rack, but it was it was actually quite funny. Well, it's not funny, it was it was quite it was wry, I should say. It was a good illusion for classic genre fans this is a hollywood film filmed in australia but set in somewhere in america ostensible just we're we're at the point now where australia can double for america with production offsets and looks both like america well on the podcast we'll be covering a 
film where New Zealand doubles for America. I think anywhere can be America now. Anyway, yeah, it's it, it works. Chicago is actually filmed in Canada. But anyway, we're getting sidetracked. This is about Cecilia, the Elizabeth Moss character, who in the opening scenes of the film escapes from her abusive partner played by Adrian Jackson Cohn, who is a world optics expert. We see the fault from this, and soon we find out that her partner has died. And however... There is a she has a concern that a invisible presence is in her life and affecting her life and following her around and things progress from there. I really enjoy this film on balance. I think it's one of the better films. It's certainly one of the better genre action flicks I've seen this year. Certainly, a lot of it depends on the quality of the technical craft, and I think Winnell in particular excels at this juncture. Yeah, I think this is one of the better Hollywood releases in a while, including all the Oscar bait. I thought this was a really fun B movie, and I agree that. It's Lewinell as the director that really elevates it. He's so good with the camera. Once again, as in Upgrade, the camera is kind of mimicking the presence uh, that's driving the action. In Upgrade, there was some really creative camera flipping all over the place stuff that managed not to be a gimmick, but to be tied to the action. Um, here, we've got the camera as the villain, as this kind of lingering presence. Um, there's a lot of dread mined out of these long shots uh, held from a distance. At first, before the the B-movie plot mechanics really get underway, it gave me a similar vibe to some of the art horror movies of recent years, like Hereditary, where it's just the dread of really long, sustained shots where you get the sense that something's wrong or that there's an evil presence. There's nothing... I enjoyed a lot of this film. There's nothing as entertaining or engaging for me, though, is the first act where the camera just lingers around the department and you're left to wonder, along with the main character... What is going on? What is there? What is here? Is there a spectre of some sort? On the B movie aspects of it, I actually don't really classify this mostly as a B film. Um, in part because of production values, but also because it follows a strong internal logic. I would differ. I would diverge from that when it comes to a later stage in the film. I think, unlike Upgrade, um, when the film does go to its B movie roots and there is a departure in logic towards the conclusion. Um, it, it, I think it, it, it doesn't devolve the film, but it takes away somewhat from it. There are some stretches in credulity. There are some moments that the film asks you to just accept that I had some difficulty doing. Yeah, and there's nothing on Upgrade, likewise, at a twist ending, but that was clever and intrinsic to the, the plot and character. This was more of a aha, we gotcha moment mm-hmm. and is never as good as um, the equivalent aha, gotcha moments where you don't quite know. Is someone here? Is something here? And then it proceeds into monster territory, a la Jaws, and another film where um, you Aliens. have to say when the monster's here, and then you ultimately have to confront it. Um, this will be taught in a lot of screenwriting classes. It has a pretty standard three-act structure in that regard, but I liked it. Very tight. Very tight. Um, on the subject of its writing, though, I really appreciate that it had the courage um, to be a, quite an expansive plot with some twists and turns that goes to some places that you might not expect from the get-go. It could have easily just been a very contained thriller, um, and in some ways I think that would have been cheaper and safer than what it goes for, which is this big grand narrative, even though it gets silly, as we were saying, towards the end. Yeah, there's with the... Uh, with Yeah, with, with just as without really anything jumps in logic. I think the supporting cast also add a lot to this film. Harriet Dyer, Australia's and Harriet Dyer, who really liked in Killing Ground. She plays a great character, she does it well. Certainly 
Um, her character's function plays a pivotal, pivotal role in elevating this film. Um, Aldous Hodge, oh, so he played a pretty standard, stock standard, nice, good, tough cop. But having said that, he did it quite well. My favorite character in this, however, sorry, I've got to bring up his name, the brother of the main character, of the surviving brother of the um, Invisible Man, who for a B-movie was quite a multi-dimensional character. His, his role in the plot leaves you guessing and leaves you unsure. There's a lot of aspects of just the writing and the direction that build up such a sense of dread and confusion, um, which I think is appropriate given the subject matter that the film is going for. This is really, I think, um, one of the first big post-Me Too horror films. Yes. Um, Now, turning to this aspect of it, the film very clearly is a commentary on Me Too and like movements where it talk is it talks about the fallacy of not believing women who state that they have been victims of abuse and violence. However, and I think and I think it has a very progressive overall message to the God have. I think we have to be clear, the film does not pursue this message exclusively. There is a sequence, there's not a criticism, more of an observation. There is a sequence where we see a female character is not the main character assaulted and in such a way that people believe it is the fault of another character we and this character know this very much not to be the case but um it is not entirely uh, in the oeuvre of you must believe persons in the circumstance it does present a circumstance where this certainly does not is not the case i don't think the film's designed to be a you know a very like strict rigid me too analogy more that it's just sort of like echoing um, the ideas that are being brought to people's consciousness more about domestic abuse. I think, you know, we've got the invisible man here as a, a neat metaphor, I think, for dealing with, like, lingering after-impacts of trauma and with, you know, the confusion surrounding gaslighting, um, you know, a force that, that you, someone is so sure is there, but it's hard to convince other people. Um, I thought it was a, a very neat little metaphor, and you can feel the the rage behind it. Yeah, on this matter, we've talked, uh, we've talked in the past on the show about how important it is to depict these sorts of issues in a sensitive way, and that may mean not necessarily depicting the abuse graphically. I think at the outset of the film, the film handles it very well. We see her escaping from this figure, and, while we don't, and we see the aftermath. We see her suffering post-traumatic disorder. We see the impact of this abuse, which is most significant rather than outlining or making explicit or graphic the abuse itself. I actually really appreciated that. I think um, it was better left to the imagination. It, was, it wasn't necessary to go into the details of her abuse. I think we, everyone watching this film would get the idea. And a lot of this is carried um, in large part due to Elizabeth Moss, who's always been a fantastic performer and carries these scenes in all exceptionally well. I, won't, I can't fault a performance in this movie. Agreed. Having said that, there is a sequence later in the film where um, involving abuse where I don't, where I don't believe this necessarily merits an inclusion. I think it was intended to further our understanding of the character's motivation. But having said that, we already understand the character's motivation very clearly. And in this circumstance, when this instance of abuse happens, we aren't treated to, as, to the extent we are earlier an understanding of the impact and the fallout. I'm, I, don't, I don't think this merits the film not being seen. I think it is a fault of the film, but overall... I do think the film takes a progressive and good approach to this earlier on. It, I, I wish that sort of approach to post-traumatic stress disorder had been emulated later in the film as it had been earlier in the movie. 
but um, overall, I was very impressed with how Winnell and the team handled this dimension. I also don't think this ventures into the realm of exploitation because tragically um, the event depicted as something that in the context of this universe can very much transpire. And I will f- finally say on this matter that a lot of films um, do not put a female protagonist front and centre when dealing with these sorts of issues or put a male protagonist. And this is a film that does not do that. And there is obviously a very strong focus on Cecilia throughout and I appreciate that. It's something a lot of Hollywood fare does not manage or pursue. Yeah, I think there the plot element towards the end of the film that Glenn is talking about it definitely is questionable in terms of how necessary it was even though as we were discussing off air it does make sense within the context of this universe and it's definitely effective as a plot uh, element in terms of forcing the hand of of several characters in the the narrative Um, it just comes down to a question of taste I think really but as a whole I agree with Glenn that I think the film is definitely on the side of victims and of women who are abused and tries to um, find a big genre horror movie way of expressing a lot of the internal turmoil people in these survivor situations face. Now, these are very serious issues we have talked about on the show, and if you are, if you want to discuss these sorts of issues with anyone, we certainly encourage you to reach out and do so, and 1-800-RESPECT is a great helpline for this and a great service. The number is 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. That's 1-800-737-732. We're going to be continuing on the podcast talking all things Guns Akimbo. Next week, we'll be discussing Dark Waters as well as other things that are happening in the world of cinema. We'll figure it out before next week. <laughs> we promise we, 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 promise we will. Um, the, the, the Lee Winnell's The Invisible Man is in cinemas from tomorrow. And the Fantastic Film Festival Australia is at the Randgrits until March 2nd. And if you're listening from Melbourne, it's playing at Melbourne's Lido Cinema from until March 4th. And there's a few great screenings coming up, so do seek it out. Yeah, there's also, uh, starting on from Wednesday at 2pm, when the episode we do, on uh, the day our next episode comes out, the new series at the Art Gallery of New South Wales about fakes and deceptions comes out, starting with Orson Welles' great film essay, F for Fake. And go see Japanese Supernatural. It's in there too. It's really good. Yeah, it's about to end. So this has been Glenn Falcon, Stan and Chris Evans. Brought new will join us in the subsequent week. Have a wonderful night. Stay tuned for The Sonic Assassin. Enjoy movies. Good night. Bye. And we on the On the Film Fight Club podcast talking all things Guns Akimbo. This is getting a special screening thanks to Monster Fest and Monster Pictures on Friday night all around the country and is in general release from the following week. So we're going to be talking about the snip film. It stars Daniel Radcliffe and is the second directorial feature from Deathgasm's Jason Lee Howden. Now we need to address a controversy that has, brewed, uh, that has come about online in the past few days. Um, so what is a broad summary of this is that the Director Jason Lee Howden has been reportedly um, made some tweets which Mad Men, the film's distributor, has characterized as unacceptable subsequent statement um, regarding his reported criticism of what he reportedly termed cyber bullying and bullying. Um, the Mad Men, and those tweets, as I understand, not, at the time of recording are no longer available online. Madman released a statement saying that we are Madman are found this behavior unacceptable, but intend to release the film because hundreds of people worked on this feature. We agree. Um, we have certainly expressed that sort of sentiment in the past in regards to other films where there has been um, other controversies. So we plan to cover review this film. Um, on a personal note, I actually had done an interview with Jason Lee Howden and had intended to publish it, I sought clarification from the, per- the group who got in contact me to arra- me to arrange the interview 
and I did not receive a clarification that would make me satisfied to publish the interview. Therefore, I've decided not to publish the interview of Jason Lee Howden and effectively promote him, given his reported immediate behavior, which, again, may have been turned unacceptable, but we are going to be covering Guns Akimbo. Guns Akimbo is starring Daniel Radcliffe and Samara Weaving. It is set currently in also It is filmed in New Zealand, which looks very much like America, and is well about... Well disguised, just well, like... Uh, the Invisible Man that we yeah. just spoke about, disguised. Yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, it is, is also filmed. Uh, it's filmed somewhere else, but predominantly in New Zealand, predominantly around Auckland, Germany as well. I think Germany, actually. yes, right. It was filmed in Germany. Yeah. And it is about an internet troll played by Radcliffe, who's a bit of a who's a massive loner, and then gets a, a, taken away by a group called Schism, who enjoy putting trolls and people in terrible situations for well, people's most, online well, viewing. Usually it's not trolls. Usually it's just we pit criminals against each other in a real-life first-person shooter and we stream it with drones that fly around following the action. Yeah, think of the... What's the Black Mirror Season 2 episode um, where they take all the people... Where they White have bear. drones follow... No, they have drones follow um, Bron from Game of Thrones around and the guy from It's Only in the End... The kid from the It's Only in the End of the World... And th- so that if you don't do these tasks, then we will release your online behavior. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's very much... It, it, it rips off a few Black Mirror tropes, um, certainly the Truman Show, and it has these people following him around. He wakes up, finds guns are surgically affixed to his hands, he has 100 bullets, and he has to fight the Samara-weaving character, Nyx, in order to survive. And all these exploits are followed on to camera. It is also starring Flight of the Concords, Reese Darby in a minor crack role. It's a, yeah, it's a crack addict. Um, and it has an extremely strong video game aesthetic. Certainly, as we see Radcliffe's character's bullets deplete, um, there's a counter on the screen. You've gone from 198, very much like you would see in a video game, and suddenly the action progresses like a typical video game. Okay, so what kind of gun does does Daniel Radcliffe have affixed to his hands? Which that, a, uh, you know, has like uh, 50 bullets in it. It's a big magazine. That's a huge magazine for a handgun. Handgun, <laughs> haha. But he can't. But he Lol. he never never says, "Can I reload this? Is there a place that sells ammo?" Yeah, a lot. Like, does it hold fifty bullets, with, but no reloads ever? Well, like, is, is the bit with the magazine affixed to the palm of his hand, so he can't reload it? Yeah, um, I like be, yeah, if, if you like the whole selling point of this movie was like it's the, it's like the gun hands guy. So I would have liked to like get into the mechanics of how the gun hand thing works. Yeah, to, to be clear, um, like it's drilled into his hands. A lot of the visual intended visual humor of this film is him trying to do things like go to the toilet. Or pick up his phone, pick, or his pants. His pants He's wearing yeah. a dressing gown and slippers, yeah. basically throughout and, the entirety of the movie. And look, some of that, some of that humor is amusing, where with the guns connected to his hands. But I, that beyond the physical comedy, there, there was nothing justifying the main selling point, the main image from the film. The action scenes would work just as well if it's a guy holding two guns. Like there was no point where they thought up a creative. Um, angle for the action revolving around a guy with guns connected to his hands. So the premise could have been just as well have been you are now registered in the game and here are two guns. Like I, I know the guns affixed to his hands makes it hard for him to do stuff, but you yeah. you expect there's going to be some kind of twist on action. And no, I haven't thought of any ideas. Maybe there are no ideas, but I didn't write a movie called Guns Akimbo. Yeah, I, think, I, think, a, I think the intent is more around movie. the visual humor of <coughs> having his this. Um, restriction on him yep. um we should also note that i think we watched this film in very different contexts that's true yes glenn uh probably watched it in the ideal state which is very drunk at eleven thirty on a saturday night and yep. just like yeah um guns akimbo this sounds guns akimbo on yeah 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 i um 
I was very sober for this. Probably too sober. Um, yeah. I just found this lacking in original ideas. I, um, and I found it really smug and self-satisfied in the tone and really, really unfunny. Um, it, it's kind of doing the Scott Pilgrim thing with the on-screen video game um, graphics and the music and you know the one-up sound effects and things like that synced to the action. Um, but it doesn't have the wit that Edgar Wright brings to the visuals. Um, as an action movie, I thought it was pretty poorly shot. It's got this hyperactive flipping all over the case, the place camera, which I think is meant to show the disorientated state of Daniel Radcliffe's character at a few points, but it's too much. Like, it just feels too affected. Um, I thought the action um, is just, there's too much of it. It's too frenetic. It's kind of exhausting. Um, and a lot of the time, it doesn't feel like it's playing to the clearly low budget of the film. So there are these big CGI-style action set pieces that end up just looking cheap. Um, I found the jokes often really bad. Um, the Riz Darby from Flight of the Concords is funny, but the, the way his character is written... He's barely in it, though. He's barely in it, but the way his character is written for me just epitomizes... Uh, I don't know. It's the unfunniness... Mm-hmm. The unfunniness was extreme. This it's just it's such a nerd movie, and I think I'm just over the whole nerd subculture. It's like it's a movie about like how cool it is, like blow like heads blowing up and brains splattering on things, and it's always cool, um, except for when it's sad, uh, you know, when it has to be for the plot. And there's all these. It's like Scott Pilgrim um, in terms of all the pop culture references, except it's been updated to contemporary internet memes, so it's more insufferable. Um, I you know the world of it makes no sense right like there's the, there's an active police force which may or may not be compromised but it seems like some of the police are actually chasing some of the people involved in this game it seems pretty easy to put a put a stop to um schism based on what we see in the movie but for some reason they're able to operate without being stopped by the police um I don't know I I'm I'm giving it probably more thought than it was ever designed to hold up to all right, so you've covered a lot of what you don't like about this film. I'm going to talk about a few things I didn't like about it and then talk about what I did like about it. I appreciate that a lot of this film is repetitive. The action sequences and also the way they are shot are samey. It is a bit of a one gimmick. Oh, you have guns attached to your hands. Having said that, I did like the visual humor and how it was deployed and some of the things Radcliffe has to do. I think the stars really elevate this. I really like Radcliffe and particularly Weaving in this film. I think she's best in show. I referred to Darby earlier. Weaving, sorry, uh, Radcliffe has this, you know, fish out of water. Oh, what have I done? And you certainly see his arc develop throughout the movie as he is incredibly nonplussed and then becomes gradually more confident as he's forced to fight out of these situations. Weaving, I've always enjoyed her performances. This may be my favorite of hers to date. I liked her in The Babysitter and some of the other stuff she's done. Certainly, she uh, transformed, I think, a lot more in this than she has in other performances. And I like, I think it's making broad strokes in, in terms of political commentary. I know films like Black Mirror, The Truman Show, go into a lot more detail, but I did like what this ultimately had to say about cyberbullying. It talks about how um, there is a negativity to how online treatment and how um, conflicts and things can pan out online. I think, you know, at this point, we all kind of know that cyberbullying is bad, trolls are bad, um, online comment sections are bad. I don't think the film actually goes that deeply into this. Like, No, I don't think it goes that deeply into it either. I'm just no, saying yeah. I think it took a 
good direction. Uh, we, we all agree. Yeah, I think we, if most sane and, people will agree. But there aren't a lot of films actually covering the sort of territory. Yeah. So um, I, I appreciated that. The Samara Weaving character, yeah, she her performance is good, but I found the way this character it was written just so annoying. Like the, like always the cooler than thou action chick who always has a sarcastic cutting quip you know all the time because she's so cool and she loves cocaine um oh yeah that was actually something i liked about this film the way they handled in video games obviously you have a token that gets you your hp your power up they're different in this for her it's cocaine and those scenes while they were repetitive were always funny the same with the application to radcliffe's character it just reverts to this really tired old stereotype where it's like behind the fiery woman there's like this sad crying little girl who's scared like it's such an such a bad cliche oh i'm this film 100 percent. i'm with you on the writing but i do as as before i do believe the all the actors involved to elevate this do bring a lot to it the actors are better than the script i also appreciate uh there are a lot of films that attempt to cover video game territory adapt video games most of them are very bad a few are very good i would refer to the mortal Kombat movie this isn't based on any video game but it approaches visually and in terms of style pacing and plotting video game dynamics better than other films and i liked how that was generally deployed it's a distinct style which i don't think is perfected here but i'm glad it was pursued and i enjoyed it even if it did get repetitive throughout to me we already have the perfect first-person shooter movies, and that's the John Wick series. They're just mindless kill, kill, kill shooting, and uh, you know, like, look at how stylishly this guy is getting off, popping up headshots. Like John Wick epitomizes that like movie as video game thing. The first John Wick, at times, watching some of the like the the scene where he raids the industrial area to get the guy, the bad guy's son, was like, oh yeah, this is Call of Duty. Um, this movie is very John Wick in the the shootouts. It also kind of feels like the Crank movies. Um, again, it kind of feels like Scott Pilgrim. I just didn't find much of what it was doing to be that original. Uh, that was probably the biggest issue with it for me. If it felt fresh, I would be a lot more forgiving. All right, it does something that the John Wick films do in parts but don't do for huge stretches where you level up in terms of the boss levels where you get more and more and more advanced in terms of people you have to compete with. It annoyed me in John Wick 3 how suddenly if you have armor, you had to get two double shots to the head and things like that, which weren't, which were, yes, um, evocative of video game aesthetics, but this followed better in terms of its pacing. But moreover, what annoyed me about John Wick, especially the first one, is that while they try to go for this whole boss level up, when we do get to the Michael Nyquist character suddenly oh, the, uh, John Wick is suddenly not as capable of dealing with it. Agreed. Whereas in this film, when you do level up and get to the further boss characters, they do give rationales and basis for them being harder to overcome. And I liked that about it. There was consistency to this, that there wasn't in John Wick. Having said that, yes, I even John Wick 3 was a better film in terms of its shooting style and cinematography style. I'll make that distinction there. Yeah, um, And better choreographed. Yes. I just felt like the action in this felt too constrained. Um, it maybe like... It should have worked better around its budget. But there was a also an intrinsic suspense in this film to <clears throat> in John Wick it's always he has unlimited bullets. But here yeah. there is a ticking clock, he only has a hundred bullets, what is he gonna do with them? And I liked that. Yeah, and I'll I'll say something positive about the film. It is quite well paced, so there's an entertainment value to it just because of the ADHD stylings, I think. Yeah. Like the stuff's constantly happening. There are some twists in the plot you might not expect. Um even it's it's 
a straight line in terms of the major end goals, but there are some nice bumps in the road along the way. Yeah. What I would say is this. If the, if a film where Daniel Radcliffe gets, Harry, Harry Potter gets guns surgically attached to his hands with 100 bullets sounds like a good idea to you, then you'd go see it in the right crowd. I think you would enjoy this more in a monster fest. I'm not trying to plug the screening here, but, but I think... But it's true. I think the, the crowd would really elevate it. I can see crowd participation lifting it and people really getting into it yeah it's on a friday night at event george street and have like a you have a beer go watch it like if, if you're gonna watch it go watch it in that crowd the thing about um you calling him harry potter is when i was watching this i never thought harry potter daniel radcliffe no. has reached the point for me where he's just daniel radcliffe yeah he's beaten enough interesting distinct pe- features obviously horns um we yeah. talked about society man earlier he's moved on so much from harry potter in the same way robert pattinson has moved on from twilight and look, he's a, How, a Daniel Radcliffe's a good actor. Ever he, since, he I think, Half-Blood Prince, look, he's he, been good. He is good, but you mentioning Horns, Swiss Army Man, and now this, it's, it's funny, like, he, he still was, is always kind of a wizard, right? Like, yeah. he still always has some kind of fantastical ability <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in, in the roles he gets cast uh, in. But the, the best uh, trick on that is, now you see, it's a terrible film, but Now You See Me Too, where he's playing a magician. Right. Which was, which was quite funny. I that never he, saw now, now You See Me Too. It, it's awful. But he has been very careful in not trying to be typecast and has gone for he deliberately has, yeah. very different roles. Outrageous roles. Yeah, and this is certainly no exception. So to screening in general release in March, but there is a screening for Monster Fest on Friday night. Lee Winnell's The Invisible Man starring Elizabeth Moss is in cinemas from tomorrow. And uh, Fantastic Fest is screening till March 2nd at the Round of Regrets. And apparently, the lane- I haven't been there, but there's a laneway cinema and they're doing screenings in the laneway. Yeah, the the Randwick Ritz has had some nice upgrades recently. Uh, there's, I think there might even be more cinemas, more screens coming. I'm not sure about that. And that's what I've heard ever since it was purchased. That yeah. they're planning on. I hope this, as long as they don't get rid of the main beautiful Art Deco one. Something crazy also happened uh, today. The uh, the, no, the baboons. Tomorrow. The baboons. Yes. Yeah, they're <laughs> out. If, if, as at the time of reporting, they have been captured. Uh, yeah, it's, it's no Ad Astra situations. In, in your yeah, it's, don't don't diarize for 28 days later. Everything's going to be okay. But no, um, tomorrow United Cinemas Opera Keys opens. Yeah, but I I'm looking it up now. I'm trying to see if there's session times. Dendi Opera Keys is no more. Wow, um, but they are Dendi Dendi Newtown is obviously still, still going. I think they're actually planning on bringing in a few new cinemas to the Dendi lo- the new Opera Keys location. There are yeah they are which is um, talking about the Ritz reminded me. But yeah, apparently there's session times. Let's look this up. Invalid location. Please check your link. Okay, well, on the site, there's no session times up, but apparently it opens tomorrow. Yeah, check that out. There'll be That'll be there for... Um, it's been in the hub for quite a few festivals. The Sydney Film Festival, the yeah. Sydney Latin American Film Festival, the Korean Film Festival. Yeah, I really wonder how Sydney Film Festival is going to run if Dendi Upper Keys, or now United Upper Keys, doesn't allow them access, doesn't cooperate with the festival um, because there aren't that many screens in the city. Actually, the bigger question is going to be how is Sydney Film Festival going to run if the planned development at the George Street Cinemas Complex goes ahead and there's no cinema there on George Street? Yeah, what are they going to do? Hoyts? Um, Hoyt's Palace Broadway, obviously has never had Palace a corporate Central. agreement. Well, Palace has never had a corporate agreement with the Sydney Film Festival. They've done, they've done some of the post-festival screenings. Yes, that's true. Excuse me, that's true. So but in terms of the festival proper and... They and furthermore, there are Hoyts potentially. Yeah, there's a few. But it would be way more scattered. The great thing about the locations now is that they're close by. Close by, yeah. So well, that's something we'll be uh, covering we'll in see. more detail come uh, City Film Festival and other festivals that are coming up later in the year. 
So yeah, um, have a wonderful night. Let us know what you want us to yeah, fight about. Morning or afternoon. Whenever you're listening. Even, you know, enjoy 4 a.m. if that's when you're listening. Yeah, if that's... But yes. Um, never know. Never know. Have a wonderful... Whenever. You every know, have a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. Good morning. <laughs> Evening. <laughs>